0: You're listening to Short Run, WBUR's home for special limited long-form and narrative audio series from across Boston's NPR station.
1: WBUR Podcasts, Boston.
0: From here and now in WBUR Podcasts, it's The Great Wager. I'm Scott Tong. This is episode three in our tale of Richard Nixon's top secret plan to go to China lure Beijing away from the Soviets in the Cold War, and change the balance of power in the world. By the way, if you haven't listened to parts one and two, go back and do that first. Okay, so previously on The Great Wager, Richard Nixon lets the world in on his long secret plan. He's going to China. But here's the thing. In Beijing, the American president is at the mercy of Chinese Communist Party leaders. Okay, take it from here. Jane Perlez of The New York Times.
2: Nixon is alone in his hotel room in Beijing, uncertain and on edge. He's just arrived in China. He should be feeling really elated. He's the first American president to be in China since the communists came to power more than two decades ago. But he's traveled halfway around the world, and he still doesn't know if he'll meet China's leader, Mao Zedong. He's the president of the United States, that he's completely in the hands of the Chinese, something he's not used to. The main purpose of the trip is for China and the United States to become friends, for each man to judge the other. Nixon needs Mao's stamp of approval. So he's sitting in his room, alone and undressed, about to take a shower after the long journey. This is how he later describes what happens. I was
1: actually had taken off my clothes and was sitting in my shorts uh, uh, prior to going in and taking a shower when Henry came in, again, rather breathless.
2: He's talking about Henry Kissinger.
1: And said, Mao wants to see you right away.
2: President Nixon dresses and he's whisked away. No secret service, no aides except for Kissinger and one other. This is dumbfounding to Nixon's aides. They've only just arrived, and already the boss has disappeared into the dungeons of the Communist Party. Bob Haldeman, Nixon's chief of staff, crew-cut, stern kind of guy, tells his diary, you wonder what's going on when you have the Red Army surrounding the president. I'm Jane Perlez, and this is The Great Wager, how Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger made friends with China 50 years ago, and how it's all falling apart. Mm -hmm. Let's rewind for a moment. In July 1971, the Chinese and American governments announced that Nixon would travel to China.
1: I have requested this television time tonight to announce a major development in our efforts to build a lasting peace in the world.
2: Now it's February 1972. The big moment is finally here. Nixon sees this as a history-changing trip that will put the Soviet Union in its place and ease the tensions in the Cold War, all the while keeping the United States number one. Beijing has had a major victory that will help them back into the international fold the Communist government has been welcomed into the United Nations. A big deal for them.
1: For a report on what the United States may be planning on the ticklish question of Chinese membership in the UN, here is ABC diplomatic correspondent Ted Koppel. According
2: to and Taiwan, the island off China that will stay separate from the Communists, is kicked out. On the plane ride over, Nixon gets out his yellow pads, these are his favorite props, and makes hand-scrawled notes about similarities between himself and Mao. One of the things he writes down? Nixon and Mao both have problems with intellectuals. When Air Force One lands in Beijing on that cold February morning, the pilot radios to an American secret service agent on the tarmac. Do not see any crowds, says the pilot.
1: Beijing Airport is seldom busy, and despite the president's arrival, it wasn't much different on this day.
2: The Americans know that the Ethiopian emperor Haile Selassie, who had just been in Beijing, attracted huge crowds at the airport. But now the airport is empty, save for an honor guard. No big welcome. The Americans don't know it, but the chairman is actually gravely ill. He suffers from a severe heart condition... His brain isn't getting enough oxygen. A month before, his pulse stopped. While Nixon is sitting in his shorts, unsure of whether or not he'll meet Mao, the Chinese are scrambling to make sure the chairman looks as presentable as possible. Mao's doctors ease him out of his bathrobe. They stuff his bloated body into a new suit. They trim his hair. Mao has been so out of it, that he has to practice getting up and sitting down from his big puffy armchair with the help of the two young nurses who take care of him. They even hide oxygen tanks and a respirator in the furniture and behind the potted plants. Finally, they're ready. The President of the United States meets Mao Zedong. Mao's doctor paces up and down the corridor as Nixon enters. Nixon and Mao talk big picture. They leave the details to Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai, and to Kissinger. Later, Nixon recounted what they discussed in an interview with his former aide, Frank Gannon. Mao, in that
1: self-deprecating way of his, said, you know, he said, sometimes I think that people like me sound like big empty cannons. We talk about overthrowing everybody. We will overthrow the imperialists, and we'll overthrow the revisionists, and we'll overthrow the capitalists. He said, after all, if we overthrow everybody, we're not going to have any friends left. So sometimes we have to get along with the rightists, and that, of course, he met us.
2: Nixon later talks about Mao's commanding presence, comparing him to Charles de Gaulle, his all-time favorite leader. Both sides come out ahead. Mao is giving the Americans his stamp of approval, which is what they wanted. And Mao is getting something huge, the biggest anti-communist in America has given the communist government in China his blessing, giving it legitimacy that it has long strived for. The Chinese people are surprised by the sudden turnabout. Huang Hong was a child then, and she remembers that people thought it was fantastic. Not so much fantastic that it's great, but fantastic that it's unimaginable that China and America would actually have a normalized relationship. But we also thought about it as fantastic, as great, because it's almost like China discovering a new world. Minxin Pei was also still in school and read about the new relationship in the People's Daily. He's now a college professor at Claremont McKenna in California. He sent me a photo of the front page from that day. Front and centre, there's a picture of a fragile-looking Mao shaking Nixon's hand.
0: Up to that point, China was really isolated. And now you have the world's superpower coming, knocking on your door, uh, showing a lot of goodwill. There must be a sign that China is being recognised for its status in the world.
2: Americans are watching, too. Every beat is discussed on television. President Nixon has left the
1: airport. This is where where President Nixon came today. Here comes the motorcade now, as you see. The president, of course, remains delighted at things having gone so well so
2: far. They are fascinated. It looks like a whole new world. The president's trip has sparked a China craze of sorts. Lots of China is instantly China, fashionable. Fancy New York restaurants serve what, what the now. Americans are eating in Beijing. News channels even hire China experts to demonstrate on air how to use chopsticks. Seems pretty corny now, but that's the way it was. China was the cool new thing. After the Mao and Nixon tete-a-tete, the Chinese put on a big show for the Americans, a banquet at the Great Hall of the People. The Great Hall is a huge, ornate building given to the Chinese by the Soviets in the 1950s. The Chinese like to bring their visitors here to impress them. I propose a toast to the health of President Nixon and Mrs. Nixon, to the health of our other American guests, to the health of all our friends and comrades present, and to the friendship between the Chinese and American people. Nicholas Platt, a State Department diplomat who specializes in China, is there. He's been studying China for years, and because of the bad relations, he never expected he'd actually be able to go.
0: Those of us in the the press and in the State Department felt sort of slightly giddy. The Great Hall was graced by an orchestra of PLA folk dressed in their floppy costumes of those days. And... They were playing absolutely magnificent version of Turkey in the straw. And I guess that was supposed to make us feel comfortable. And it did.
2: You have the Chinese army, known as the People's Liberation Army, playing an American favorite, Turkey in the Straw. Nixon is jubilant, toasting others with a glassful of Chinese liquor. There's camaraderie, but there are also more somber reminders of how different the countries are. Like Mao, a lot of the Chinese leadership is elderly and in very poor health. There's been very little change in power since the communists took over.
0: People at our table said, well, you're all so young. And I said to myself, well, I'm young. I was 36 at the time, but the others were not. And that hit me with a big bang. To the effect that, that in fact there had been, with the exception of political purges, no change in the leadership at any level, and that the body politic
2: was stuck. There are still four days left in the trip, and a lot to be settled. What will the relationship be between the two countries? What will happen with Taiwan? All of this will be codified in the Shanghai Communiqué. Meanwhile, Nixon. Well, he goes sightseeing. I
1: think that you would have to conclude that this is a great wall and that it had to be built by a great people.
2: Kissinger does the serious stuff, hashing out an agreement that is supposed to outline the foundations of this new relationship. And it's hard work. Then there's a last-minute hitch. State Department diplomats are insisting that Kissinger has given away too much on Taiwan the island off China that Beijing believes belongs to them, but which the United States has pledged to defend. The State Department won't stand for it. Nixon is furious at Kissinger. He directs him to fix it. Because for Nixon, if they don't reach an agreement, the trip will just be a footnote, and he wants this to be a lasting relationship. Moreover, he has a re-election coming up. At the last minute, They make a revision that leaves the future of Taiwan ambiguous, a problem that reverberates today big time. The decision to agree to disagree allows Nixon to finally celebrate, get loose, no matter that it's 3 a.m. Nicholas Platt, who was at the banquet a few days earlier, is invited to the presidential suite. He's never been this close to Nixon before, and he can't help but notice his prodigious jowls.
0: He's got, he's got a, a flower dressing gown over his suit. Nothing unusual about it, but not what heads of state usually wear when convening a meeting. He, he has giant cheeks filled, filled with walnuts, and in one hand is a cigar, big, fat, and in the other is a scotch and soda, big and
2: dark. Nixon is elated that the two governments have reached an agreement. The relationship can now start in earnest.
0: And so Nixon took me to the door, put a flowered arm around my shoulders, and said, from now on, you China boys are going to have a lot more to do.
2: And indeed, they would. The two countries will work together as friends. They'll even collaborate on super-sensitive issues of intelligence. Within the decade, they'll be sharing national security secrets and spies. The Great Wager is brought to you by Here and Now and WBUR Podcasts. Our series was reported and narrated by me, Jane Perlez, and produced by Grace Tatter. Editorial direction from Scott Tong and Jeb Sharp. Sound design by Paul Vikas and engineered by Mike Moschetto. Our executive producer is Ben Brock-Johnson.